Good morning, church. The Lord is here this morning, and I am excited to talk to you about him. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Will, and I'm the pastor here at Tri-Village, and it's such a blessing to have you here with us. Uh, this morning, we are continuing our series through 1 Peter, entitled Living Hope, Living Hope. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. As you turn there, I'm going to go ahead and read just for the sake of time. Um, if you don't have a Bible, no worries. We have the passage here on the screen behind me. But it's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Here's what God's word says. He says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always, everyone say always. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive. In the spirits, the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we come before you today and we understand that you are the, the great one, the strong one, the mighty one, the, the, the highly exalted one. Father, I come before you and I pray right now for the people who are here, Lord, regardless of what they were thinking about before they got here. I pray that for these next few minutes, Lord, you would be the only thing on our minds. You would be the only thing on our hearts. Father, I need you. I pray that you would be the only thing on my, on my lips, Lord, that as I share your word, that from the moment I say amen, God, it would not be me speaking, but it would be you speaking through me. Father, we need you. We declare that at the end of the day, Lord, our ultimate identity, security, and significance does not come from what we went through this week, but it, it comes from what you did for us 2,000 years ago. And so, Jesus, we come before you and we ask you that you would be present, that you would be exalted, and that your words would be spoken here this morning. Because if it's a man speaking, Lord, we are going to waste our time. We need you to be present. We need you to be at the center of everything we do. And like I said, I don't know what people are going through this morning, but as we talk about this subject of evangelism, I pray that you would prepare our minds, our hearts, our souls, our wills, and that you would be present among us. Jesus, we need you. We need you. We need you. We need you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now this morning, we're going to be talking about the subject of evangelism evangelism. For those of you who are kind of new to the whole church thing and you have no idea what evangelism is, let me, let, me, let me explain it to you like this. This is what evangelism is. In Matthew chapter 28 in the Bible, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus, he resurrects from the dead. And one of the last things Jesus tells his disciples is he gives them the great commission. And the great commission is this. He says, go therefore into all the earth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so the last thing that Jesus tells us to do is to go and make disciples, to go and tell other people about him. And so the word evangelism, that's what that means. The process of going and telling others is evangelism. So if you've never heard that word, that's what we mean by evangelism. And what Peter's going to do here in this passage this morning is he's going to give us the four ingredients of healthy evangelism, of an effective witness life. You can look at it as four marks or four ingredients or four steps, but what he does is he gives us the four marks of what an effective witness for Jesus looks like, an effective evangelist for Jesus looks like. 
And they all start with the letter A because I'm a preacher and that's how I do things. And if it's not a letter A, it's not from the Lord. So it's all got to start with the same thing. And here, here's the first thing. He says that the first mark, the first step you have to take if you are going to be an effective evangelist is you have to have the right action, the right action. The second thing he says is you have to have the right attitude. The third thing he says is you have to have the right approach. And then the fourth thing he says is you have to have the right adoration. So the four parts to effective evangelism is action, attitude, approach, and adoration. So what we're going to do for the rest of this morning is we're going to go section by section through each one of these steps, and we're going to see what does it look like to be an effective witness for Jesus. So he says that the first thing is you have to have the right action. It's action. Look where I get this from. Look at verse 13. Let's reread verse 13 again. Look what Peter says. He says, who is going to harm you? If you are eager to do good, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. So according to Peter, the first step in being an effective witness, an effective evangelist for Jesus, is you have to have the right actions. You have to be marked by the right behavior. And the reason why we know that is because what he says here in the passage is he says, if you are eager to do good, the word do has to do with action and has to do with behavior. But it's not just any kind of behavior because the word eager, here's what the word eager there means in in the Greek. The word eager, it means to be uh, uh, passionate about something. It means to be enthusiastic about something. It means to be zealous for something. So it's not just that we do good sometimes, but that we have to be passionate. We have to be committed. We have to be zealous about doing good. That's the kind of behavior that he's talking about here. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Every single person in here is zealous about something. That's the way that we're wired. Every single person in here is zealous about something. The problem is, here's the thing. I'm talking to Christians here for a second. Every person here is preaching a gospel. Every single person is an evangelist for something. The problem is, for a lot of Christians, we are zealous about something other than the gospel. And so, so we don't, we, we're scared to bring up our faith, but if you bring up politics, we're ready. Hey, we're scared to bring up our faith, but if you bring up fantasy football, I'm ready. See, what the problem with that is, is that we are all called to be zealous for doing good. So if you're sitting here and you're like, oh, I'm just not the zealous type. No, no, no. You are the zealous type. You're just zealous for something other than Jesus. You have to be zealous. You have to be passionate. You have to be committed. You have to be enthusiastic about what? About doing good. That's what he's talking about here. Now, one of the things that we've said here from the beginning at Tri-Village is that we want to be a church. There, there, there are three Bs that come, from, that come when it comes to the church. And I'm not talking about triple B like LeVar Ball. I'm talking about the three, three other Bs. The, 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 there's three Bs that we have to be aware of when, when we are doing church ministry. And here's one of the things we've always said, that when we want people to belong, when, when people come to our church, we want them to belong first. And then after they belong, then God will take care of the believing and the behaving. But what a lot of churches do, what they say is, hey, hey, we want you to behave first. We want you to believe first. And after you behave and believe, then we can let you in our church. Then you can belong. But at Tri-Village, one of the things that we've said from the beginning is, no, 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 we don't care what gender you are. We don't care what color you are. We don't care what sexuality you are. We want you to belong. And then God will take care of when you behave and when you believe. That's not our work. Our work is just to make sure you belong. And that's what we're about, right? So it's, be- it's belong, then, then believe, then behave. But here's what's interesting. When it comes to evangelism, though, when it comes to that, so that's when people are coming in. But when we're going out, actually, the, the words are in a different order. According to Peter, the first thing that people notice 
when you are going out is you're behaving. People are watching you. Your coworkers are watching you. Your family members are watching you. Your neighbors are watching you. And the first thing, so if the first thing we want people to experience when they come to church is belonging, the first thing people see when you're out there is behaving. You need to be anxious, you need to be not anxious, you need to be passionate about doing good. You need to be zealous. You need to be enthusiastic about doing good. That is what he's talking about when he brings up us having to do good. Now, here's what's interesting about this. What I find really interesting about this is that if, if, if you look at the, the, the following section, verse 14, in the following verse, he says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. So according to Peter, there's only two responses you can get when you're living out the gospel in front of non-believers. On the one hand, they'll accept it, or on the other hand, they'll reject it. There's, there's no in between. They either accept it or reject it. But here's one of the things that stood out to me this week that I didn't know when I was studying the passage. I didn't really expect this until I started studying the passage. The way Peter asked the question in verse verse 13, what he's actually saying, according to commentators, is that persecution is a rarity. You're actually not going to be as persecuted as you think you're going to be persecuted. What Peter's saying is actually if you live correctly, if if you are passionate about doing good, I always thought that he said, oh, you're going to be persecuted. But he's saying most of the time you're actually not going to be persecuted. Because when you love God, the the, the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. When you love your neighbor as yourself, most of the times your neighbor is going to love you back. But sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're not going to be fans of what you're doing. But that's actually the exception, not the rule. That was actually surprising to me. That's That's how he writes it in the Greek, that question. It's the exception, not the rule, persecution is. But then he says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, even if, even if they do persecute you, he says, you are blessed. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You know what the word blessed means? The word blessed means favored. It means favored by God. So here's why this is important. If I tell my friend about Jesus or my neighbor or my coworker about Jesus and they reject me, the reason why I'm okay is because my ultimate favor doesn't come horizontally from them. It comes vertically from the Lord. And because the Lord has approved me, the Lord loves me, the Lord has, has, has allowed me to be in his presence and I'm favored by him, then who cares what anybody else thinks? We don't evangelize when we forget that we're favored by God. Because instead of finding our favor in God, we go looking for our, the favor of our neighbors. And that's why we don't tell them about Jesus. That's what the word bless is getting at there. So there are going to be people who absolutely love what you have to say. There's going to be people who absolutely hate what you have to say. That's what Peter is saying. Some people are going to praise God because of it, your behavior, and some people are going to persecute you because of your behavior. Those are the only two responses. And it's actually the same thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look what, look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, verses 14 through 16. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us, listen to this, to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Then he says, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And in verse 16 is is amazing. He says, to the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. So listen, if you're a believer here, and you're living out your faith the way you're supposed to, you have a stench. You smell. Now, that's really hard for me to say as a Cuban because, you know, I, I wear cologne like to take the garbage out. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I have like 17 sprays on me just this morning, okay? But, but what, he, what he's saying is, 
is that if you are actually living out your faith, there's going to be a smell. And that smell can be a good smell or that smell can be a bad smell. People will come around you and they will either smell life or they will smell death. You can't control what they smell, but you have to smell. That's what he's saying here. There has to be a smell. You know, one of the things that happened to me, um, I don't know if I've shared this story here before, but one of the things that happened to me when, when, my, when my wife and I first got married, we, we were living in the area, we got married, we, lo- we moved to Louisville, Kentucky. And when we got to Kentucky, we were looking for work. I was in seminary, but I needed a job, and Lily was looking for a job too. So after a few months of being there, Lily found a job as a babysitter, and I found a job at Chick-fil-A. And at Chick-fil-A, I ended up gaining like 30 pounds because was, I was just eating all the time. And... Um, uh, so that, so that was my experience at Chick-fil-A. But then at some point, I, I ended up finding a job as, a, as an insurance salesman. And it wasn't just any insurance salesman job. It was, a, it was a very particular type of insurance that we sold to people who were in the union. And so I, I, they, they called like as a, a telemarketer and they told us about the job. I'm like, you know what? I'd rather do that than stuff my face. So let me try that. So, so I go and I apply and I, and I end up getting the job. And so what we would do is we would go to people's houses who were already in the union, and then we would try to convince them to buy more insurance through their union policies. And that's what we did. And so we, we, I had this guy who was like mentoring me, or my, I was his apprentice, if you will, and we would go from house to house. And one of the things that was so interesting is that our boss, so the guy that was our boss, he was doing this training with me once, and, and in the training he says, so here, when you get to this part, which is like the funeral package of the insurance, and you really want people to buy the insurance, you say something like this. So then all of a sudden, like, he puts his head down, and he brings it back up, and he starts getting emotional about his grandma and how when his grandma died, you know, there was no, there was no money to pay for the, for the, the funeral, and, and he wished he would have had this insurance. And I'm, like, getting emotional with this dude, right? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know? And I'm like, I'm so, I'm, after he tells me, I'm like, I'm so sorry to hear about your grandma. He's like, my grandma didn't die. My grandma's still alive. He's like, I just tell people that to sell the product. I remember that being a huge red flag to me. Then later on, then later on, I go out, and it took me several weeks, and when, when you're commission-based, you're not getting any money until you sell. And so after several weeks, I finally made a sale, and I was so excited, and the lady started signing stuff, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. You know, like, I was, I was so pumped. So I called Lily. I'm like, this is awesome. We're going to get commissioned. Well, I bring my paperwork into work the next day, and I find out that she signed every single document except for one. And because that document hadn't been signed, we couldn't process the paperwork. And then my boss told me, he's like, here's the bad news, too. Most people get buyer's remorse. So if you go back and get that signature, there's a good chance she's going to turn down the policy. So now I'm not going to get paid for another two weeks if I don't do this, right? And so I'm sitting there. I'm like, all right, well, I'll go later today and blah, blah, blah. And then my boss is like, actually, you know what? Just wait here a second. He goes into the back room. Five minutes later, he comes out. He's like, hey, the paperwork's done. You're going to get paid. And I'm thinking, oh, man, maybe he called the, girl, the, girl, the lady. You know what I mean? Maybe he connected. You know what I mean? He asked her. Whatever. It turns out he didn't ask anybody. He went to the back, he looked at her signature, and he forged her signature. And right there, I had a, I had a decision to make. Do I make money? And it was going to be a, a significant amount of money because she signed up for a lot of stuff. Or do I stand up for Jesus? And so I go home and I'm wrestling because I know that in order for me to say something, I got to get him in trouble. So I'm not only debating with do I stand up for Jesus, but do I call him out? So then I decide that right there and then, we're broke, we need money. I call the boss, my, the boss boss, and I said, hey, I just want to let you know today was my last day at your job. And then he's like, oh, tell me why. I'm like, well, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. He's like, no, no, you got to tell me why. So I told him why. And what was so interesting is as I tell him why, he almost starts laughing at me over the phone. Like he's like, wait, that's why you're leaving? And you could tell he wasn't going to talk to the guy at all. Like that was so common 
that he's like, oh, oh, that's why you're leaving. Oh, okay, well, thanks, Will. Thanks so much. Click. I lost a job that day. See, if I was zealous to make money, sign, let's forge all the papers we can. See, if I was zealous to be impressive and be accepted by my peers, let's keep forging it up. But since I was zealous for doing good, I was persecuted for it. I lost my job. More weeks of, of no money. I don't know if, if to them I was an aroma of life or death, but I know I smelled. God decides what he does with it. That's what it looks like to be zealous for doing good. So the first thing we're called to do is we are called to action. We are called to action. The second thing we're called to do if we are going to be effective evangelists is we are called to have the right attitude. It's not enough just to have the right action. You also have to have the right attitude. And and here's where I get this. Look at the following section, verse 15. In verse 15, he says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So according to verse 15, the first part of verse 15, the second thing we need if we are going to be effective in our witness life if we have, is we have to have the right attitude. We have to have the right attitude. Now look at how he describes this attitude. He says, always be prepared. The word always there means perpetually. It means continually. In other words, there should never be a moment where you are not ready. There should never be a moment where you are not ready. And actually, that's actually what, if you go to 2 Timothy, it's exactly what, what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter, uh, no, uh, there you go, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, listen, he says, preach the word, listen to this, be prepared in season and out of season. Be prepared to do what? To preach the word in season and out of season. And then he says, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Listen to this. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Hashtag Joel Osteen. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. He says, we have to be prepared in season and out of season. So listen, in the NBA, there's an off-season. In the MLB, there's an off-season. In the NFL, there's a super long off-season, right? But as Christians, we don't get off-seasons. You always have to be prepared for the hope, to share the hope that you have. And you know what's so interesting about God? Almost always, almost always, you, you, God opens up the most opportunities when you are least ready. So it's on the seasons where you don't want to share with anybody that God opens up opportunities. So you're going through suffering, you're going through cancer, you're going through bankruptcy, you're going through issues, and then when other people see you suffering, they want to know why you're handling the suffering the way you're handling it. And so it's almost always in the bad moments that God uses those opportunities to share the gospel with people. And so the reason why we have to be ready in season and out of season, not just when things are good, but even when things are bad, is because people are always watching and you never know when they're going to ask. You never, you never know when they're going to check in. You never know. And here's what he says. Listen to this. Go back to the, preview, to the, to the Peter passage. So he says, but, but, but always be prepared. And then he says, to give an answer to everyone. The word answer there in, in Greek is the word apologia, which is where we get apologetics. The word answer. It means to defend something. It means to justify yourself. That's what the word answer means. But here's what's so interesting, guys. 
If we are going to be effective witnesses, if we are going to have the right attitude of preparation, here's the thing. When people come to you and they want to know the reason for the hope that you have, and your response is, oh, what's that verse again? Oh, man, what does the Bible say about suffering? Oh, what does the Bible say about money? Ah, oh, man, what's, what, what, what's that? You're not compelling anybody to Christianity when you don't even know the Bible yourself. How am I going to offer Jesus as the answer to everything when I don't even know God's word myself? Oh, man, I got to call my pastor. What's that verse? Oh, let me check Google. Let me check Google because I know it kind of ends with this. Oh, no, it's not. That's not not first, Peter. It's, it's, are you serious? How is that convincing? How is that anyone going to say, oh, wow, Jesus really means a lot to you, clearly? You got to be prepared to give an answer. And the only way you prepare to to give an answer is by being in God's word, by getting on your knees and praying. By spending time with the person you claim to love. It's the only way. So, so, so I don't know about you, but that would not make me want to consider Christianity if you don't even know what God's answer is to suffering or God's answer is to money or God's answer is to relationships. If you don't know, then why am I asking you? No wonder you don't live any different than I do. We got to be ready. We got to be ready. Listen, your devotional life affects every single person around you. As a matter of fact, in my experience, I have never read anything in the Bible or in a Christian book that God hasn't used within two weeks after I read it. Literally, there's times where I'll read something, I'll be like, well, that's random. And within two weeks, God uses it for me to tell somebody about it. And I think, man, what if I wouldn't have read that? I wouldn't have been able to encourage or reach out to that person the way I did. God always uses what you read. God always uses what you learn. Because it's not ultimately about you, it's about others. That's why he tells Abraham, I am blessing you so that you can be a blessing. The blessing isn't for you. The blessing is for others. The blessing is for others. You know, one of the, the, the books that I, that, I, that I read on this subject that really helped me is a book by, um, uh, by Dave Ferguson, Dave and John Ferguson. And the name of the book is called Exponential. And in the book, he tells people how to be an effective witness. And he takes the word bless and he makes it an acronym. Okay, so if, you have, if you're taking notes, make sure to write this down. And if you're not taking notes, God's judging you. Okay, but anyways, um, so, so, so he, takes the word, he takes the word bless and he writes it as an acronym, right? And each letter in the word bless is a way in which we can bless the people around us, is a way in which we can be an effective witness to the people around us. So the first letter is B, the, the B, right? And he says the first letter is to be in prayer. You need to be in prayer. You need to pray for the people that you're trying to reach. I'm going to tell you a couple examples of people I'm trying to reach right now in my life, and I pray for them all the time so that when I'm in their presence, I'm not praying right there. I've been praying for them already. So the first thing is to be in prayer. If you're not praying for someone, don't even really try to approach them because the Lord has to do a work in them too. It's not what you do. It's what the Lord does. Be in prayer. The second thing, the L, is listen. We have to listen. You see, when we get around non-Christians, we do a lot of talking. That's why one of the things that bothers me are like those prepackaged evangelism kits where they tell you this is what you always do. You always use God's law, and then you always follow up with this, and then you always... Here's the problem with that. As you listen to people, you might see that what they need to hear is something totally different from what you thought you had to say. But if you treat everyone like a prepackaged non-believer, oh, this this has to work because that's what so-and-so said. No, you have to listen. You should be doing way more listening in your evangelism than you do talking. The E, the E has to do with eating, which I love eating, so that's, that one's easy for me. But you can actually be missional by eating with people. 
That's why Jesus always ate with non-believers. Because when you eat with someone, especially in Jesus' day, you're saying, I am your equal, and I want to do life with you. Eating. You will, you will be surprised how many things happen at a dinner table or at a lunch table or even getting coffee. Eating. The first S in bless, the first S is to serve them. Serve them. To make sure you are serving them. Actually, and this is kind of an extra one, but allow them to serve you too. You know, one of the things that happens as Christians is we come to people like we have all the answers and all the solutions, and I'm just here to fix you. There's so many things that non-Christians can offer us. And when you humble yourself and allow them to serve you, it actually opens up the door for you to serve them and for you to talk about Jesus. Okay? And the last S is to share. At some point, you got to share. At some point, you got to tell them what the reason is. At some point, it's got to come out. And if you guys remember a couple weeks ago, we were talking about investing and inviting. I, I called you guys out to say, hey, listen, we have to be investing. With every non-Christian in your life, there's only two things you could be possibly doing. You're either investing in them or you're inviting them. There's only two phases. So when you look at the bless, the B-L-E-S, so pr begin in prayer, listen, eat, serve, those four things fall under investing. And then the last one, which is to share, falls under the inviting. We are to invest or to invite. And one of the things I called you guys to, and I'm calling you to again because we are not done, is I want you to choose one person this year that you are going to bless. One person this year that you are going to invest in. One person in this year that by the end of the year you are going to invite. Just one. Not two, not 10, not 20. One. Just one. Actually, in the book of Ezekiel, I wasn't going to bring this up, but whatever. In the book of Ezekiel, he, he talks about God is talking to the Israelites, and he's talking to the Israelites about the people who are surrounding them. And, and he's also talking to the prophets about the prophets actually sharing the gospel, the, the word, God's word. And what he tells the prophet Ezekiel, he says, listen, your job is to be a watchman. And the only thing a watchman does is when the watchman sees the enemy coming, the watchman has to tell the people on the other side of the wall, hey, there's an enemy coming. He says, you, you can't control what people do. Some people might listen. Some people might not listen. But all your job, your only job is to tell them that they're coming. But then he says, if you don't tell them, their blood is on your hands. So the people who, so every single one of us, if you're a believer here, you are a watchman standing on the wall. And Satan, sin, and death are coming. And your job is to tell the people on this side of the wall that Satan, sin, and death are coming. What they do with it when you tell them, you can't control it. But if you don't tell them, their blood is on your hands, is what God tells Ezekiel. It's on you. Listen, there are people, there are non-Christians in your life that you're the only Christian they know. Do you know what that means? That's your mission field. And you know who God's going to hold accountable for them? You. Okay? So, so, so we have to have the right attitude. We have to be, we have to be prepared to give an answer to everyone. And listen, it's going to change from person to person. So there's two, one of the things that I, that I always try to do, and I'm not good at this, I, I fail all the time, but one of the things I always make sure I try to do is whatever I'm preaching on, I'm either growing in that or I'm already doing it. Because there's no right reason for me to stand up here and tell you to do something if I'm not doing it myself. And so right now, there are two people in my life who I am investing in. There are two people in my life who I'm trying to bless. There's one guy named Mike, who's my neighbor, and there's another girl named Christine. And let me, let me tell you about each one. And you're going to see how, how I, I actually, I change, my, my, my interaction with both is different because each person is different, and each person's in a, spirit, in a different spiritual place. So, so Mike is my neighbor. 
He lives right next to me. We've lived at our house for almost two years now, and, and I've met him from the beginning. And I've, I've gotten to know all my neighbors. I, 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 I know all of them. I've prayed with many of them. But, but the reality is that in the two years we've been there, this is the person who I've most connected with. Like, this is the person that God has really laid on my heart, at least for this season, right? I've invited Mike over to my house twice already. And both times, he, like last second, he comes up with an excuse for why they can't do it. And you guys think it's hard to share the gospel when you're just a normal, everyday Christian? When you're a pastor, it's the worst. With every single one of my neighbors, I'm out there talking, we're having a great time, and they're like, hey, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, that's great. Welcome to the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> Have a good one. Nothing kills conversation more than telling someone you're a pastor. Right? But during this week, I was like, you know what? I've been denied twice already, but if I'm going to talk to people about investing, I'm going to invite them again. So, so it's funny how even me, I'm an evangelist. I love telling other people about Jesus, I, I, but I get scared. And I'm like, oh, should I go over there? I'm like, nah, you know, I don't got to bring it up in my sermon. You know, I'm, it's, 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 it's raining out. You know what I mean? Like, it's like a beautiful sunny day. Like, you know what I mean? I just, I just don't want to go, right? So then I, so then I, finally, I finally go, and I, I'm thinking I'm going to have to go up to his door, but he's actually standing there. And I was like, hey, man, how are you? It's so good to see you. And I'm just small talking, you know. And he was there with another guy who was another neighbor. And, and so they're, they're drinking beers and, and, you know, just talking and stuff. And and then I say, like, after talking to him for a few minutes, I'm like, hey, man, so he brought up that, on, he, he works at a school, so he's off on Monday because it's President's Day. I'm like, hey, so uh, I was hoping, wondering if you're off that day, do you and your wife want to come over for, for dinner? And, like, the whole tone changed. He's like, yeah, let me, uh, let me talk to my wife, and uh, I'll get back to you. Now, listen, I don't know what he's going to say, but my job is not to control what he says. My job is to be a neighbor. My job is to be in prayer, to listen, to eat, to serve, to share. That's my job. God will decide what happens, but I have to take that step. Now, the other person who I'm currently in the process of reaching is a girl named, is a lady named Christine. She's not a girl. She's, she's a lady, but she's Christ, her name is Christine. And one of the things that you guys don't know about me is that your pastor is a very discouraged person. That, that's like my thing. Like my thing is discouragement. I don't, I'm not usually an emotional roller coaster. I'm pretty steady. But, but, but for some reason, the one area where it just hits me almost weekly, almost daily, is discouraged. I'm a discouraged person. And one of, the, one of the days that I am most discouraged is on Sundays. And everyone can say positive things about my sermon, but I find something that went wrong. I find something that, that didn't go well. And I just, I've always, even before I met Jesus, I've struggled with discouragement. And so one of the things that I do, you would think, oh, you're like, oh, we'll praise about this. No, I, usually I don't pray about it as much as I should. But what I, what I do is, especially on Sundays, because what I usually do is I eat well and work out in order to look good on Sunday. And then at Sunday afternoon, I like, I'm like, whatever, dude. You know what I mean? I'm like eating whatever. I'm like, I got through the morning. But, but, here's, but one of the things that I do when I'm discouraged, instead of going to Jesus, is I like eating unhealthy. And so what I do is I go to my local 7-Eleven, and I grab, and I always say it's for the girls. I'm like, look, I'm taking the girls to get candy. But it's not me. It's just me. I'm an, I'm an emotional wreck. And so I, so I bring them with me. So my girls have the same addiction I do. And so, so, so we go, and uh, I get my grape Laffy Taffies. I get my Skittles. I get, uh, uh, you know, just, and then I always get a Slurpee bigger than my bot, like my torso. Like it's like this big. And the person that's behind the counter at my local 7-Eleven is Christine. And so Christine, I honestly feel that Christine should be on Tri-Village staff. Like, she should get money from us because she's my counselor and my dealer at the same time. <laughs> like, like, right? And so, so, so I get there. I'm like, hey, Christine. And she knows. She's not even a Christian. She's like, how was church today? I'm like, oh, not good. Like, I'm like the worst advertisement for 
Christianity ever because I'm always discouraged, like stuffing my face with food. And so then, but what's cool is these conversations have built over time and she's become like a friend of mine. And so I know about her mom. I know about she lives alone and she has a cat or two cats. And like, we just have been able to connect and talk. And and it's it's been crazy how the Lord has built that relationship with Christine. And so the other day I told her, I'm like, look, Christine, there's no way my church is going to believe you actually exist. They're going to think I'm making this up. So I'm like, can, can you take a photo with me so I can show them? And she's like, yeah. So here's a picture of me and Christine at the, at the 7-Eleven. <laughs> so I'll be seeing her tonight, right? So I'll be going there tonight. And uh, it, it, it was so funny. It was so funny because in the first service, I had like a piece of paper stuck on my, on my uh, shoe. And someone came up to me like, hey, just so that you know, there was a piece of paper stuck on your shoe. But don't go to 7-Eleven. Like, it's fine. Like, don't, don't, don't try to eat your way out of it. You'll be fine. And I'm like, I'm going to just put an IV straight into my vein today. Like, it's just going to be like Slurpee machine vein. But, uh, but anyways, so, 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 uh, so that's Christine. And, and Christine knows I'm a hot mess, but she knows I love Jesus. And she knows I'm trying to talk to her about Jesus. Okay? So if you ever go to the 7-Eleven uh, over here by, I don't know what, off of Schomburg Road. It's not that far from here. Christine is usually there at night. So that's, that's my girl, Christine. Um, so those are people who I'm praying for. Those are people who I'm trying to reach. Those are people who God has laid on my heart. I'm pretty sure I'm the only Christian Christine knows. And you know who God's going to hold accountable for Christine? Me. Not for her response, but her, 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 her receiving the message. Did she hear it? Yes or no? He determines the rest. Okay? So the first thing we got to do is we got to have a right, the right actions. The second thing we got to do is we got to have the right attitude. The third thing we got to do, listen to this, is we have to have the right approach. Look what it says here. This is really interesting. In the second half of verse 15, look what, look what Peter has to say about having the right approach. He says, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Peter's saying that, that the, sec, the third step to effective evangelism is you have to have the right approach. Listen, guys, I would go as far as to say this. You can have the right action, and you can have the right attitude. But if your approach is wrong, the first two don't matter. It doesn't matter. Here's what the word there, the word there, gentle, he says, but do this with gentleness. The word there, gentleness, means meekness. It means humility. It means to be pleasant. When's the last time you met a pleasant Christian? We're jerks. We're not pleasant at all. We're not humble. We're prideful. It's a horrible experience for people. And so you get on Facebook and you, you write these super controversial political statements, and then people attack you, and you're like, oh, I'm being persecuted for my faith. No, no, no. You're being persecuted because you're a jerk. Because you're a fool. That's why. He says to be gentle. He tells us to be gentle, to be pleasant, to be uh, 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 meek, to be humble. That's the approach that we should have with people. That's the approach. That's the type of approach that people will listen to. But when you come to people and you think you're superior, and when you come to people and you're being abrasive, you're actually burning bridges. You're not building them. And that's one of the things I struggled with when I first became a Christian. I became a Christian at 18. And when I, when I first met Jesus, I was so just, right away my action changed, and right away my attitude changed. So I, my behavior was good, and my, my, my attitude was I was, I, was, I was ready. I was ready to tell anybody. But my approach was horrible. 
And so I would be at a barbecue with my family, and I'd be like, man, it's really hot out. You know what this reminds me of? Hell. That was horrible. Nobody was listening to me because I wasn't gentle. My approach was totally wrong. So, so, so you got to be gentle, but you also have to be respectful. It says to, to respect, to, have, to, to, to be apprehensive, to, to take time and, and really be respectful as you approach this individual. Gentle and respectful. Nine out of ten times, I'm neither of those things. We have to be both. Listen, and part of what being respectful is, we go back to the L in the bless, the listening, is to, to listen, to hear where the person is coming from. You know, Pastor Lan, um, in his book on evangelism, he has this awesome section on human longings. And he talks about the things that people uh, are looking for. Every human is looking for these things. And look, look, at, look at what the, the list that he gives. I'm, I'm going to go quickly through this. But he says the first thing that every human being wants is they are looking for eternal life. It says in Ecclesiastes that eternity is in our, in our hearts. That's how we were created. So that's the first one, life. Another longing that human beings have is they have a longing for meaning. They have a longing to matter. They want to know that what I'm doing here actually matters. The other thing is forgive, to forgive, forgive, to be forgiven or to, 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 ask, to, to ask for forgiveness of someone else. So many people in our culture, because of sin, struggle with shame and guilt. And the, the part of the gospel you need to bring to them, if that's what they're struggling with, is forgiveness. Another one is help. Some people are struggling and need answers for suffering and for pain. And so the part of the gospel, I was talking to, we were talking to one of our, our dear friends that we had him over um, uh, the other day to our house. And and I was telling them that the gospel is like a diamond. And so we always know that whatever we're going through, the solution is always that diamond. But depending on where you're coming from, there's a different facet of the diamond you have to look at. So it's always that diamond that's the answer. But if I know you're struggling with suffering, I'm going to show you that part of the diamond. That's the part of the gospel I'm going to take you to. And then he's, the other one is uh, relationships. So people are fearful of being alone. That's why people are on Facebook as much as they are. Because they're desperately looking for community, and they're looking for it in a website instead of in a savior. Another one is beauty. Beauty is, every, there's, there's a deep desire, especially in the creative types and the artistic people. And, 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 and what they want is they want, they want to see the lovely. They want to see the things that are good. Then nothing is more beautiful than, than the gospel. And so that's the route you can take. And look at the next six. One of, another one is God. We have been created with a longing for a, crea- for a creator. The other one is freedom. Some people are looking for freedom from an addiction. They're looking for freedom from their past. They're looking to break free, break free from something. And Jesus says, Jesus came to, 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 to die for, he says, I came to bring freedom so that you may be free. In Galatians, it says it twice. Freedom so that you might be free. Jesus is the one place where freedom is found. Another one is purpose. There's a longing to have a purpose. What am I here for? Another one is justice. There's some people in your, in your life who are non-Christians who are very passionate about justice and 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 social justice, things like that. The, 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 the ultimate justice is found in the gospel where all wrongs are made right. Another one is happiness and contentment. True security and pleasure are found in Jesus. And the last one is hope, hope that, and belief that things will be better. And that's why Peter, if you go back to the verse, that's why he talks about how we need to give, uh, um, he talks about there, the reason for the hope. See, hope, a lot of times, hope in the world that we live in, hope is, hey, I hope we'll have nice weather tomorrow. Or I hope, you know, my team wins the game. But in the Bible, hope is totally different. 
Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation. We need to tell people what our confident expectation is in. And if it's not in Jesus, they don't tell them anything. But if it is in Jesus, that's where confident expectation can be found and grounded in. Okay? And the last thing I want to say about this point uh, before we move on is he says that we have to give, you have to give the reason, right? He tells about the reason for the hope. The word reason has to do with thinking. And one of the things that people accuse Christianity of is that to be a Christian, I got to turn my brain off. Your talking to people should be, should be logical. You can't just say to people, oh, well, believe in God because you believe in God. It's not an emotional argument. It's a logical argument. Christianity makes sense. And we should do everything in our power to present it that way. And then the last thing I'll say is this. He says, with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. When you approach people with gentleness and respect, you are much more likely after that interaction to have a clear conscience. But because a lot of us aren't gentle or respectful, we get into the car and we're like, dang it, why did I say that? Man, I should have said this. Oh, I should have said that. You know why? Because you weren't gentle and you weren't respectful. There's a book, actually, and I would love for you guys to read it. You get extra credit if you do. Um, it's a, by a guy named uh, Randy Newman. It's called Questioning Evangelism. And what he does is he said that he got to a point in his walk where he was always the answer guy, giving answers and answers and answers and answers. But as he started reading the gospel, he saw that Jesus only asked questions. That's all Jesus ever did. Question, 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 question. So the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, hey, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And most of us would say, oh, man, this is my chance. I'm going to knock this, this is like T-ball. I can hit this one out of the park. I just got to tell him about the gospel, and I'm in. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? You know why? Because Jesus knew that only God is good, and that guy didn't think he was God. So why are you calling me good? The guy ends up leaving because he wasn't ready to receive the gospel, to receive Jesus. Jesus responded with a question instead of with answers. One of the ways that we can keep a clear conscience is by approaching people with gentle, respectful questions. Listen, you know you're on rock. So instead of every Thanksgiving dinner, you know, trying to, to, to prove that you're on rock and catch every, you know, pitch that the, the, that person's throwing at you, you flip it and you're the ones that ask questions. I know I have the answers. So what's your answer for suffering? How do you handle adversity? Where's your purpose and identity? Instead of you being the answer person, be the question person. You don't have to prove that the rock is better. You just have to prove that the sand is worse. And then God will take care of the rest. So let's go to the four again. First thing is action. The second thing, the second thing is attitude. The third thing is approach. And the last thing that we need to be doing if we are going to be effective witnesses for Jesus is we have to have the right adoration. We have to have the right adoration. Look what it says. I'm going to reread verse 15, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 17. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And then he says in verse 17, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, who was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So according to Peter, the fourth and most important step in evangelism is your adoration. So up to this point, we have been talking about our, our walk. And we've been talking about our witness. But listen, the only way that you're ever going to have an attractive walk and an effective witness is if you have intimate worship. Your adoration matters. Your adoration matters. Your worship of Jesus matters. If I'm not worshiping Jesus, then I'm not going to tell you to worship Jesus because I'm not even worshiping Jesus. 
An attractive walk, an effective witness can only happen if you have intimate worship. I'm going to read you a verse from John chapter 7. This is a verse that I, I had, oh, I've read so many times, but I didn't realize what Jesus actually said. Look what he says. At the, I think it's the, the Feast of Tabernacles. At the end of the festival, it says, On the last day great, and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. People know that part. But then he says, Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. You see, I always thought that what Jesus was saying is that if I drink from the water, rivers of of water are going to flow into me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that as you drink from this water, it's going to flow out of you into other people. Listen, the reason why you are not overflowing with living water is because your well is dry. You haven't prayed. You haven't read. You haven't worshipped. So how am I going to have an attractive walk and how am I going to have an effective wor- of, of witness if I'm not having intimate worship? If I'm not drinking from the living water, how am I going to give living water? It comes from within you, not into you, but from within you is where the living water comes from. That's what we're talking about here. That's why adoration is so important. That's why even though adoration is the last thing, it's actually the first thing because if you're not adoring, then you're not going to have the right action, you're not going to have the right attitude, and you're not going to have the right approach. It flows out of the adoration, and that's how you become an effective witness for Jesus. You see, and here's what's beautiful about it. When you suffer persecution, if you go back to the passage, when you suffer persecution, the reason why we can adore Jesus is because Jesus suffered the ultimate persecution. You see, we do a little bit of suffering, but Jesus suffered once for our sins. So it was the worst persecution ever experienced in humanity was what Jesus went through. And so the reason why we are always going to be blessed is because Jesus was cursed. The reason why we get to experience life is because Jesus died. The reason why we don't have to worry about our consciences being uh, 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 convicted is because Jesus cleared our consciences when he died in our place. That changes everything if you understand it. It changes everything if you understand that. Listen, the reason why I can put up with horizontal condemnation is because I have received vertical commendation. The reason why I can receive horizontal persecution is because I have received vertical praise from my Father. Listen, listen. To the degree that Jesus is on the throne of your heart, to that same degree, he will be on the tip of your tongue. Can I get an amen? Amen. 